0: We just went through a holiday season. And so uh, that means that probably most of us had uh, maybe at least one uh, family dinner or, or dinner with, you know, a group of people. And I think by this point, we know that uh, those kinds of dinners, uh, they can go sideways pretty fast. Uh, doesn't take much for a uh, warm peaceful, harmonious family dinner to end up with people uh, in a very heated discussion about, who knows what, uh, politics, about it could even be COVID again by this point, who knows. Uh, uh, We know that it it doesn't take much because we've seen it, we've experienced it, you know, Uncle Frank and Uncle Hector at some point at each other, mom's trying to calm everyone down, reminding we only get together once a year, twice a year, can we just... Be a nice, normal family for at least one time in the year is, is the call, and it sometimes happens. Uh, I mention that because uh, this, this kind of deterioration we see in, in the Bible itself with, with the disciples, with, uh, as they're there before Jesus. Uh, last week, David walked us through uh, Jesus' teaching on the, the final Passover meal, the Last Supper. And there were some amazing, grand uh, truths spoken that you would have thought would really grip the disciples, would fill them with a sense of of God's love and purpose and generosity for each other. And yet, what we find instead is that they are arguing uh, about who is the greatest. And uh, it just seems uh, like a shocking turn of events. Uh, So what we're going to do, actually, after the teaching from last week, where Jesus, you know, explains, here's my body, here's, here's my blood, in the new covenant, there's these three uh, shorter sections uh, where Jesus speaks into the Im- immature responses of the disciples. Uh, there's three of them. Today, we're just going to look at the first and the last. Uh, we're going to skip over Peter, because he needs a whole Sunday for himself. We're going to do that next week. Uh, but uh, today, we're going to look at, so verses 24... 30, and then we're going to jump forward and do 35. So uh, let me read the first chunk, and then then we'll get into it and see what God has for us. So uh, verse 24, a dispute, there it is, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves? So we'll we'll pause there. Uh, The two points I have are kind of double-sided. So here's the first one. Uh, Beware of an inflated ego. Pursue the greatness of humble service. So, in both of the, both cases, we 're going to be aware of something, pursue something so let 's start with the ego. We see it right away verse twenty four a dispute arose they 're arguing uh, who is the greatest. Uh, this seems shocking, given what Jesus had just spoken about the grace and mercy of God, but it shouldn 't really shock us uh, because they 're human beings and because we 've seen this in other parts of uh, of the New Testament of the gospels of the disciples themselves. This is something they 've argued about before. Uh, my favorite time, it's been more than once, but my favorite is uh, Mark 9. Uh, this is them on their journey, traveling, and it goes this way. And they came to Capernaum, and when he, Jesus, was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. <laughs> I love that. He's like, what were you guys talking about? Uh, nothing. You sure you weren't talking about something? No, I didn't talk anything. So it shouldn't really surprise us, and especially given the fact that Jesus had just uh, said to them, look, one of you is going to betray me. And so you can imagine that what kind of welled up within each disciple is a desire to make clear, it's not, it's not going to be me, and the way they would probably do that is by sort of justifying themselves. Uh, uh, you know what I gave up to be here. You know the fishing boat I left behind. You know all the, the job that I've you, You've seen the miracles that, that I've done. You've seen all the ways like they're, they would try to kind of um, defend their own honor. And in doing so, would, you could see that leading to, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm, the, I'm really the greatest disciple. No, I am, you know, and it's just foolish. And yet, it's, it's very common. It's very familiar. It's easy for us as human beings to get this kind of inflated ego. Uh, I would say, especially when we are doing uh, things that are good, when we're uh, hard at work, when we're sacrificing, uh, when we're in a position of, of leadership, it tends to skew our, our perspective. Uh, the disciples, you can just imagine, look, look at all that I have done. When, when we're in those kind of position, we expect the people around us to give us recognition and respect. We're all like this, I would I would submit to you. We all naturally have uh, like a running list, don't we? Can't you just, without even thinking about it, you know there's a list of the good things you've done recently. And the things that you would pretty much expect the people in your life to know that you've done these things. And why wouldn't they uh, show you some sort of appreciation or, or, or honor or esteem? And when that doesn't happen, we tend to get very irritated, very offended. If, if they could just see what's obvious, all the sacrifices that we've made, all the ways we've served them, uh, then everything would go great. But when they don't, we're, we're very, very offended. I remember one time uh, Dawn was reading a, a mum blog and uh, there was this woman that um, was telling the story of her family dinner and her family was not, they didn't like what she had cooked. And she got so angry, she, she took her dish and she threw it against the wall, smashed everywhere. Right? She's so incensed. And as parents, I'm like, I I get that because you give so much and you serve so much and your kids are like, I don't really like this. It doesn't taste very good. You're like, ooh, what's so ingrates, right? You get, we, we're all like that. We, we, we assume and we expect people to, to honor us because we're doing good things because we're serving. I mean, we would, we would never say, right, the words of Muhammad Ali that, that I am the greatest, but we feel that way. And we think that everyone else should think that of us. And so Jesus sees this in the disciples, these inflated egos going at each other, and he cuts, he cuts right into it. He says to them, look, you're, you're, you're thinking like the world. Uh, look at verse, verse 25, right? He says, he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. So kings of the Gentiles means those out in the world, those who are not Jewish, those who are not part of the kingdom of God. And um, he says this phrase, they exercise lordship. Uh, that in the Greek means to dominate completely. So it's not just like showing leadership, it's it's ruling with a heavy hand. And uh, they call themselves benefactors, which you see through history, the, some, the leaders, They sometimes give themselves so-and-so, the benevolent or the gracious or whatever to to put a nice uh, name on it, but really they lead in a very cruel way, in a very selfish way, and you see this all over the place, right, for human beings in history, the tyrants and kings that do this in culture. Uh, Think of the CEOs that rule their company, right, my way or the highway, the politicians that grab onto power and will not let go, even in... Even in families, you see this, right? With, with dads or husbands that, that expect respect, demand respect, demand obedience. And sadly, you see this in the church with ministry leaders and pastors that are leading. And here's the distinction, not for the sake of those that they lead, but really for the sake of their own ego. And it, and it twists and, and it hurts. And Jesus is warning them The fact that they're arguing about who's the greatest is a very clear sign. This is is a problem. Their egos are inflated and he exhorts them to to the other way, the godly way, to to pursue the true greatness of humble service. And he makes it clear uh, by, look at verse 26. You can see uh, he's trying to show um, how wrong they are or how much of a contrast there is between the world's idea of of greatness of leadership and God's idea. So verse 26, he says, but not so with you, rather let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. So both of those things would have been uh, very counterculture, very shocking. Uh, Back then, those who were young, it's not like today. Today, when you're young you know, what do we want for our kids? We, we tell them they have a voice, that we want to hear their voice. They're caterpillars. We want them to blossom into butterflies. We want them, we, we lift them up. Very child-centered, right, is our culture. And That wasn't like that back then. Back then, if you were a kid, you were seen and not heard. You had nothing to contribute to any conversation because you were young and you didn't have any experience and so you were put down. So no one wanted to be young. They wanted to grow up and to be men and, and women. You see this Uh, in the counsel that uh, Paul gives to Timothy. He says, don't let them look down on you because you're young. That was the expected disposition of the culture. And so now Jesus is saying, you need to be like the youngest. Would have been very like, what what do you mean? No one wants to be young. Uh, And then he adds on to to be a servant, which again, uh, in our culture, that's that's not quite the same thing. We, we have uh, books uh, called The Help, you know, that movie, which, which seek to understand those who are in service and there's a certain honor and, and dignity. It wasn't like that back then. Uh, he goes on, right? He says, um, for who is the greater? The one that reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? That's how they would eat. There were no chairs. They would lean on their elbow on a pillow and they would eat and they would be served and everyone knew you you wanted to be the one reclining. They were the ones who had power and wealth and authority. The servants had had nothing and, and they were looked down upon. And so again Jesus saying to be great, you need to be like those who serve. It was it was a complete juxtaposition, a complete contrast to what was welling up in the hearts of the of the disciples. Jesus goes even further to help them understand because he He doesn't just say, this is what it is. He he identifies himself. This is me, right? So verse, uh, the last bit of verse 27, but I am among you as the one who serves. And if you look at Matthew uh, 20, his version of this goes even further. um, uh, 20, 27, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so there you see Jesus making very clear the extent to which we need to humble ourselves. And he's saying, if you want an example of this, look to me, right? The son of man, the, the, the son of God, one who is deserving of all glory and honor. What did I do? I came to earth and you would expect that, that I would be served, but in fact, I'm the one doing the serving. And more than just serving, remember, he, had just, he had just washed the disciples' feet. So they, they had a practical example of this. But he pointed forward to the greater service, right? He was gonna give his life as a ransom for many. He was gonna gonna serve in the humblest way. And he's saying, I'm the example. I'm who you should look to. The question I think we should be asking, what they were probably sort of wrestling through, working through is, is, okay, I I hear you, Jesus. I see that that is uh, godly greatness, humble service. But why is that greatness greater? Because we know it doesn't feel greater and doesn't seem greater. It doesn't seem like it would be better to be the one serving or to be, or to be younger, to be in a position without, without power. So why is it better? And the answer is because in humble service, what it does is it magnifies the one who is truly great. That's part of the problem. When our ego gets inflated, when we demand recognition, demand respect, when we exercise our authority in a strong way, what happens? We eclipse the true greatness of God. Because essentially what we're doing is trying to get all, all eyes on us. And that, that's always a bad idea. Um, even if people love us, that's what we want. It feels good for us. We think it's great for them, but it's not. Because they end up putting us as, as sort of a functional savior. Uh, the other way is also not great. They, they end up despising us. They hate us because we're too heavy-handed. In, in either case, they are, it's going to be harder for them to see Jesus because of the way that we lead. But if we humble ourselves, if we serve others, then we get out of the way. Like John the Baptist, we point to Christ. Right? He's the one who should be glorified. He is, the, he is the greatest. And in doing that, people are more greatly blessed. They see the source of the true blessing from God, the true greatness from God. And it actually makes us, um, it's more compelling. Our leadership is more compelling. Like people actually want to follow those who serve, who are doing it for them. So the example that came to my mind of this um, is not uh, from the church. This came when I was being um, trained to be a teacher I was doing some volunteer teaching. This is way the beginning. I was just figuring out if I'm going to be a teacher, and I went to uh, my favorite teacher from junior high. Uh, his name was David Hunnings, Mr. Hunnings. and uh, he was talking to me about, you know, nature of of school and that kind of thing. And he was telling me about uh, uh, the principal, the best principal that he had that he served under, who I had. His name was Mr. Betcher, Gordon Betcher. Uh, when I was at Millard Junior High School, Mr. Betcher was the principal. David Hunting's was my uh, English teacher. And uh, Mr. Hunting said there was a time when uh, the school district uh, first instituted a uh, career in personal planning. Everyone knows this now. It's been around for a long time. But when it first came in, uh, they told all the teachers, you're all going to have to help teach this course. It's an important course. I want you to do it. Mr. Hunting's was having none of it. He's like, I came here to be an English teacher. I don't want to teach. People how to write resumes or whatever it is. He just thought it was a fluff course. And so he went to his principal and said, I'm not teaching this course. I don't want to teach this. And it put Mr. Betcher in a very difficult position because uh, this course has to be taught. And uh, this is his teacher and he's in charge and he has to make this happen. So what did Mr. Betcher do? He said, look, uh, I'll teach your class for you. I'll do it. You teach English. I can see you don't want to do it. I'll, I'll teach it for you. Mr. Hunting says, that's someone that I want to follow. And you can see it, he said, because when they set up Riverside, uh, which is a new school at the time, they asked Mr. Betcher to be the principal. More than half the staff from Millard said, we're, we're following him. Wherever he's going, we want to serve under him. Why? Because they knew he was serving not just to wield his power, but for them. That, that, that's the nature of true service. That it costs more than it costs him. He didn't, he didn't have to do that. He was a principal. He wasn't supposed to be in the classroom. Added more work, but he did it to lead well. Not through heavy-handed authority, but through humble service this should mark us as Christians. This should mark us in whatever capacity that we lead, whether it's at home, whether we're a mom or a dad, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in the church, that people, they can see, they can tell that we're, we're using our authority, we're using our, our, whatever position we have for the sake of those that we lead. Now, one point of clarification that I think needs to be said um, is about servant leadership. It's really what we're talking about, right? Uh, in, in our Christian culture... Uh, in our day, there's a real emphasis on the servant part, what we've just been talking about, the servant part of the servant leadership. And it should be there. Jesus clearly did that. He washed his disciples' feet. He gave everything. He was a servant. But sometimes when we hear that, what it, the end result is that we are afraid of leading, especially in our culture, that we're afraid of, of exercising any authority, that we think that what it means, what God is calling us to, if we're in a position of leadership, is to step back completely. And just to kind of very tentatively give direction. I don't want to offend anyone. I don't want to say anything that might make someone upset. That's not what's being said here. We should note that Jesus, he led it with a very decisive leadership style. He confronted people in their sin. He, he charted the way to go, the clear way to go. He said, it's going to be hard. You're going to have to bear your own cry. He made it very clear. This is going to be difficult. He did that for the right reasons and in the right way, that's the difference. That whatever position of leadership we have, we actually are called to lead. Especially I would, say, I would say to men in the home, we're called to lead. That means actually stepping into the position of leadership, actually taking initiative, actually having some difficult conversations. But we do it, how? With a humble servant heart, not from a place of ego, not for the sake of puffing ourselves up, it's for the sake of those that we lead so they will know Christ more and they will be blessed. So first thing, mark of immaturity in the disciples, right? They're puffing themselves up. Jesus says, no, well, point to, point to Jesus, point to God. The second part, we're skipping over Peter. Peter says some dumb things. We're gonna look at that next week. This next part, verse 35, he keeps teaching. And he, and Jesus said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. So here's the double-sided point. We need to beware of spiritual dullness. And pursue a deep spiritual understanding. I think we see, uh, we see this here. Let, let's start by examining what Jesus is actually saying. What is he trying to communicate? You'll notice he's, re- he's recognizing, I'm giving you an instruction now. It kind of sounds like it's a contradiction of what I said before. Uh, about being ready, about you know, gathering things together. So what did he say before? Uh, here's what he said. Uh, this was like a training run. He was sending out the disciples to go and do ministry. Uh, here's Luke 9, 1 to 3. And he called the 12 together, gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, here are the instructions. Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And so you can see that's very different than what he's saying now, right? What is he saying now? Get your, um, with your, what does he say? Uh, Money bag, take it. Knapsack, take it. Get a sword, get ready. And so why, why this difference? Why this apparent contradiction? Well, the difference is that this is now a different ministry context. Uh, back then in Luke 9, Jesus was sending them out into Israel, into the, the Jewish people. And the assumption was that wherever the disciples went, they would be trusting God, but also relying on the brothers and sisters in the Jewish faith to care for them, to help them. So they went into a city. This was kind of a, a part of the tradition that when there were a traveling rabbis, teachers, that people would care for them. And so they were trusting God, right? They were, had to go and uh, find those people who would hear their words. Sometimes they would have to shake the dust off their sandals, go to another town, but they, they would be cared for. Uh, Jesus is, is saying this is a different ministry context. Uh, for one thing, he knew that opposition was coming. He knew that in a short amount of time, like a day, he would be arrested, he was going to be put to, the cr- put to the cross, and his disciples, they would be persecuted. So there would be a very strong opposition that wasn't there before. The other difference is that they're going to be going out, not just to Israel, but to the world, out beyond the borders of, of the, the Jewish faith to others, and he knew that it was going to be difficult. And so what you have here is a very strong, very clear exhortation to get ready Get ready for the work that God has for you to do. You need to prepare yourself. Now, the part that I think is most confusing is the reference to the sword, right? The sword, Why? what's the deal with uh, a sword? What does he say? He says, and let one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. So the big question, is he literally talking about a sword? And uh, the answer is no. Uh, and we know this because, again, in a short amount of time, there will be a situation where uh, a disciple, Peter, takes the sword and tries to fight back. And Jesus clearly says, this is not the right way. So we see this in Luke twenty-two forty-nine. 49. This is in the garden when Jesus is being arrested. Uh, here's how it reads. And when those who were around him saw uh, what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Right, Peter had actually got a sword. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. So clearly, Jesus didn't mean that they could actually take a sword and start fighting the the Romans. But he's also clearly saying that you need to be ready for a battle. That's that's the emphasis. That's the point here. Not a battle of flesh and blood, but a a battle of spiritual importance. And so Jesus is using the sword image as a metaphor. What he's saying is you need to be ready like a soldier who's going on to the battlefield. If you actually literally were a soldier going on to a battle, you would do everything that you could to get a weapon. That's that's the highest priority. Even the shirt off your back, you'd sell it to get a weapon. You don't want to find yourself on a battlefield without something to fight with. That's the emphasis of what Jesus is saying. Um, There's a German uh, commentator, a theologian that I came across. I think he says this well. Adolf Schlatter is his name. He said, the disciples require that courage which regards a sword as more necessary than an upper garment and surrenders even its last possession but cannot give up the struggle. So the, the, the emphasis, right? The urgency is Jesus saying, look, what's, a, what's coming your way is a real battle. And it's like you're a soldier. You need to get your sword. You need to, to get ready to arm yourself. But he's not talking about physical violence. He's talking about spiritual courage, spiritual valor, being equipped, and Jesus makes this doubly clear by what he says about himself, right? Verse 37, he says "For right? He's kind of explaining the point. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. This is from Isaiah fifty-three twelve. This is a, a prophecy about the Messiah to come and what he would do. So let's look at that text. Uh, verse 12, therefore... Speaking about this coming Messiah, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus is saying, this prophecy is fulfilled in me. This is what I am about to do. I will be numbered among the the sinners. I I will bear the sins of many. And what is he saying there? He's saying that I am about to go into battle. I am going to achieve a decisive spiritual victory over the powers of sin and darkness. I'm not grabbing a metal sword to do it. I'm giving myself. I'm pouring out myself. I'm sacrificing myself on the cross. So why? So that the mission of God would be accomplished. It's not about physical weapons. It's about the spiritual strength of what I am doing for you. This is what Jesus was calling his disciples to, a readiness, an urgency. But they didn't get it. It's pretty clear, it's pretty clear they didn't get it. Why? Because what's the next thing they do? Verse 38, hey, Jesus, we have got two swords. We're gonna be like doubly ready, Jesus. Two times as ready to fight off the Romans and accomplish the mission of God. Look how many swords we have. Jesus' response, though, is, um, has always been confusing to me. And the reason it is uh, sort of confusing is because we, don't, we can't tell his tone. And also, it's, it's in English. It's a little different than in the Greek. It seems like what he's saying is, that's enough. Good. That's what we needed, guys. We needed two swords. Now the mission of God will be complete, right? That is, that's not what he's saying. Uh, really, we should read it like this. It's enough. Like, like stop talking. Enough. You're not, you're not getting what I'm saying. It's the same kind of response when Peter hacks off the guy's ear. What is he saying? No, no more of this. Just stop what you're doing. You're not, you don't get it. Uh, it also reminds me of, of when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus, right? Because the disciples are hearing all of this, this amazing spiritual truth, but they're taking it in the very literal sense. You can tell. That's, what I, that's why I said spiritual dullness. They're not able to grasp the depth of what Jesus is saying. It's a very superficial understanding. You see the same thing in Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus, esteemed teacher, very spiritual guy, but he comes to Jesus. He doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about. This is during his ministry. He wants to understand, Jesus, what, what is it that you're teaching as a rabbi? Help me understand. And Jesus says, oh, if you wanna be part of the kingdom, you need to be born again, right? That's, that's a deep spiritual truth. But what does Nicodemus take from it? Uh, Here's his response in uh, John 3. If I, can, if I can find it, where is it? Oh, John 3. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Same kind of response. Here's two swords. You wanted swords, right? I got to be like physically born again. She's like, no, no. He, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then a little, little later, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. He's saying, you're Nicodemus, you're, you're dull, dim. Spiritually, Even for you who are an esteemed teacher at this point, you don't have a depth of understanding of what? Of the, the gospel, the new covenant of what Christ is doing. Why? Because he didn't have the Holy Spirit. Why don't the disciples understand what Jesus is saying? Because they don't yet have the Holy Spirit. Which is why Jesus is saying, it's enough. Let's not talk anymore Because he knows they don't get it now, but he knows they will get it. It's just a matter of time. Pentecost is coming. When the Holy Spirit falls on these same men, these disciples who are very thin in their understanding, all of a sudden everything becomes clear. What you see in the book of Acts is them proclaiming the the, the grandeur of the gospel in a deep and compelling way. Let me just read one section. It won't be on the screen. This This is the same guys. This is Peter right? Responding to some uh, authorities who are pushing back on them because they healed someone. Listen to what he says. This is his, listen to his answer. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No one in the book of Acts is looking for a sword. You understand? They they got it by then. Why? Because the spirit of God opened their eyes, opened their hearts to grasp the deep spiritual truths that Jesus had been telling them the whole way. And it came together so that when When they had opportunity now, after Jesus is gone, to give testimony about the name of Christ, they did it. They did it with depth, they did it with clarity, they did it because the spirit was at work. This is a mark of all who know Christ. This this depth of understanding is available to all who know Christ. Christ. But we also see in the New Testament that even those who've received the Holy Spirit can struggle with a sense of dullness. Can struggle to really grasp the deeper things of the gospel and be able to say them. And we know this because in the book of Hebrews, there's this section where the writer of Hebrews is talking to Christians, but talking to them and saying, look, you guys don't get it. Uh, Look at this, Hebrews 5. About this we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk, right? Thin, understanding, superficial, dim. What is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You see the kinds of Distinctions he's making, that there are those in the church that even though they are part of the church, even though they believe in Jesus, their ability to discern deep spiritual truths, discern good from evil, to be able to articulate the gospel, all these things is very limited. And so the author here is saying, it's like you're, it's like your baby <laughs> have to feed you milk. You can't take the real nourishing stuff that you can digest it and then grow in faith and be effective, and be, and be useful. So why is that? I was thinking a bit about that. Why, why is it that, like how is it that there are some of us who've been part of the church for a while, maybe, and yet aren't, aren't able to really grasp the deep spiritual things of God? Aren't able to articulate? Uh, like in the way that we talk, you sometimes hear it. Right, Someone, someone's coming to us with a challenge, uh, struggling with uh, some sense of inner conflict, uh, doubts about their faith, and rather than taking the time to like hear them and bring scripture to mind, we will give them a like a a Christian saying. Well, you know, you just gotta you just gotta trust God with that stuff, right? God God won't give you more than you can you can bear. We just have these kind of you know very short pithy kind of aphorisms that are true to, in some degree, but they lack depth. They lack discernment. We aren't really helping each other in this way. So why, how is it that we could be part of the church, believers in Christ, and yet have maybe areas of our life where we're very, we're dull. We don't really hear of God. And I, I, a couple of things came to my mind in terms of um, kind of images. Um, here's the one that, that I gravitated towards. I, I think it's kind of like when you're sitting in a restaurant, and uh, you're trying to talk to someone, but it's very loud, right? Don and I went out uh, with some friends to Cactus Club, and it was like so loud. Everyone was like, Why are you all excited, loud? And I'm trying to hear the person. And what's happening there? It feels like my ears are dull. Like I can't hear because I actually can't hear. But why can't I hear? Because of the loud voices that are around me. And I think that's sometimes what happens to us as followers of Christ. We want to hear from Jesus. But there's so many other loud voices in our our lives. Sometimes it's literally the people around us that are, and by loud I mean overbearing, critical, uh, uh, saying things about us that they think to be true, cutting us down. It could also be voices in our own head, our own own words, our own uh, impression of ourselves. It could also be just the ideologies of the world that are very loud in our mind. Not in terms of volume, but in terms of impact. And so we're trying to hear the voice of Christ, but we can't. For us to grasp the deeper things of God, we need to actually hear Jesus. We need to be in a place where our mind and our heart is open, where there's a quietness to our soul. And for that to happen, we, uh, we, we we need to put ourselves in a place where that can happen. I just, yesterday thinking about these things and uh, there's a devotion book that we sometimes read from by Oswald Chambers uh, called My Utmost for His Highest. It's like this classic and uh, it was about this kind of thing and so there's a quote that I thought, man, I think that really could be helpful. So here's what he says. He says, there are vast areas of stubbornness and ignorance that the Holy Spirit has to reveal in each of us but it can only be done when Jesus gets us alone. Are we alone with him now? Or are we more concerned with our own ideas, friendships, and cares for our bodies? Jesus cannot teach us anything until we quiet all our intellectual questions and get alone with him. And by that I don't think he means we shut off our brain, you know, to grow deeply. What he means is that we we put in the effort to quiet our mind and our heart, to actually hear from him, to hear through his spirit. I'm not sure about you, but when I go to prayer, it's like a flood, it's like it's so loud in my brain, right? I can't, I can't say, it takes me a lot of effort, a lot of intentional effort. Sometimes I have a notebook. When something comes to my mind, I gotta, I just write it down. Just get it out of, off my brain because I'm trying to get past all of that to actually read some of the word, to have the spirit minister to me, to hear from him. And, and it, it doesn't happen naturally. It's, it's hard for it to happen. And what Oswald Chambers is saying is, that we're not gonna grow in the way that God wants us. We're not gonna have a spiritual depth unless we put in the effort and and the opportunity so that Christ can speak to us and we can actually hear him. And that when that happens, we grow in our capacity to actually accomplish the mission of God. That's the purpose of what Jesus is calling his disciples to. He's saying there's a battle coming. Get your sword, get ready. Get spiritually ready so that when there's an opportunity to wage war for someone's soul, to speak words of truth and healing, to point people to Christ, you will be ready. There will be an urgency and that you will have the weapon at hand. That really is maybe a good way to think of it. When there's a crisis, what kind of weapon do you reach for? Do we reach for the swords of the world, right? The, the metal sword, which can only accomplish so much right? Peter could have hacked away at all those Romans. I don't know how far he would have gotten. He would have done some damage. No battle would have been won. We sometimes do that with with the ideas, with the methodologies of the world. We just think if we can just be smarter, be stronger, whatever it might be. But when we pick up the sword of the spirit, right? When we're in the word of God, when we're in prayer, Lord, there's this person in my life, man, they're struggling. And there, there's some bondage, I don't know what it is. God, would you help me, point me to the powerful truth of your word that I can share with them. Help me to humble myself, to, to be in, in fasting and prayer, to be at a place where I can hear from you so that I might wield a weapon that will actually be effective in this fight. That's what we're called to. These are the marks of mature Christianity. Humble service, a deep understanding of the things of God. I think we'd all say, uh, we have some work to do. There's some work for God to do in us. But there is encouragement in this text. Uh, we're gonna jump back to that first section. You'll notice I missed, I sort of skipped over a couple verses. And that's because I wanted to hit them at the end. Because here's what Jesus says to these disciples, who are so dim-witted, who are so, like, inflated with themselves. Look at what he says still. Verse 28, he says, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What a gracious word. What an encouraging word, right? He, he confronts them in their foolishness. He's going to do that again and again and again, but he's, but he's encouraging them and saying, look, look, you're going to receive many, many blessings from God. There is grace here in this call on your life. Now, there's some specific things that I think are just for the disciples in terms of judging the 12 tribes of Israel, but there's similar blessings for us. There's a banqueting table waiting for us, right? The marriage supper of the Lamb, we will all be there. We'll be feasting on the blessings of God. We will reign over the angels, whatever that looks like. In the heavenly kingdom, for those who are called according to the purposes of Christ, man, there's great blessings ahead. And we should be encouraged that God is not looking down upon us with a critical eye, but he loves us. That he's he's pushing us, confronting us to deeper understanding. Why? Because he wants for us to enjoy it. He wants for us to have greater peace for ourselves and greater good to bless others with. So I'm gonna close. I'm gonna pray for us that we would be thinking even now of those areas where we we can live this out with greater faithfulness. So let me pray. Lord Jesus, I do, I do pray for us. It's so easy for us to get full of ourselves, Lord. It's so easy for us to get frustrated at those around us who aren't seeing, aren't, aren't seeing the good that we're doing. Lord, I pray that you would just kill that in us. I pray, Lord, that we would just, well, we would want to distance ourselves from that, turn away, that we would seek the greater path, a path of humble service, uh, a path of, of genuinely seeking your wisdom, your truth, Lord, I pray that our dull ears and our dull mind, Lord, would be enlivened by your spirit. God, that we would spend time, we would make it a priority to be with you, to hear your voice. And Lord, that we would be obedient and to do what you say. And God, may we not think that that this is peacetime. It is not, Lord. There's a battle for the souls of all those around us. God, for our own soul is at times in peril. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you've done that you have been numbered among the transgressors. You have borne our sins so that we've been set free, that Satan has been disarmed, our sin has been gone, death has been defeated. God, may we walk in that victory. And Lord Jesus, may we step into all these situations with a deep understanding of these truths and serve others as you've served us so that you would be glorified, so that we would grow and so that people would be helped. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.